0: Romans 11, chapter 11, verse 1. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for, for the truth that's in it and how it guides us and shapes us. I pray that you would speak through me this evening. And I pray that you'd open up our hearts uh, to who you are and that we would, we would be able to see uh, truth within your scripture and within what we're studying I pray that tonight would be pleasing to you and that we would grow deeper in fellowship with one another. In Jesus' name, amen. So up to this point in Romans, we've been talking all about how God saves his people. The focus of this this book as a whole has been on salvation by faith. God has chosen his people through his grace, and it's our salvation is not based upon works. God, or Paul has talked about the salvation of the Gentiles. That's us. He's talked about the salvation of Israel, and that's really what we're talking about, beginning to really talk about tonight, is what about Israel? What about the people that rejected and killed the Messiah? The people that turned, uh, turned their backs to jesus turned their backs to god and said that there's no way he is the messiah that he is blasphemous and deserves to be killed what about the people that god brought out of out of egypt that he made these covenants with them promising them that they would be his people and through them the nations would be blessed was all that work for nothing has god rejected his people Paul's answer is clear. Again, he says by no means, showing just that it, is, that it is maybe the natural question that follows all of what we've studied so far. But it is emphatic and complete that in no way, shape, or form has God rejected his people. Really, Paul has shown us that there, there is a, a difference between who are truly the people of God and who isn't. That there is a physical Israel, an earthly Israel, a nation that God chose from the pagans to be his people. They come from the line of Abraham. God, God makes specific covenants with them that if they do this, this, and this, they will be blessed, right? That he will be their God and they will be his people. But then there is a separate group. And within Israel, there's a group either called the Remnant or Spiritual Israel That is actually saved by their faith. They know that they are sinful. They know that their works cannot save them. That they they can't really fully obey the law. And they're depending upon God's promise of a Messiah. That through that Messiah they would be saved. That That is the group that is actually going to experience eternal life. The group that God sees as fully righteous Physical Israel tried to earn their righteousness through obedience to the Mosaic law, to the the Ten Commandments and how that was applied to society. But spiritual Israel is a group within that that will experience true salvation. And that's what Paul's point is, that, that God has always had a plan for his people. He has not rejected them. But what he has done is have given them what they asked for, what they sought So that's our two points for tonight. The first is that the righteous will get what they seek. And the second is that the unrighteous will get what they seek. So look back at verse one. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. This is such an important question. We've already talked about the the Israel aspect of it. But if God has rejected his people, then it completely alters our view of God. It changes the way that we look at his promises. If God had rejected his people, over and over again in scripture, we see that God's promises are true and sure and trustworthy. I mean, our entire faith hinges on putting our faith in the promises of God. Yes. That if, if God isn't going to fulfill what he's promised, then, then our faith is on shaky grounds. Throughout the Old Testament, we see in Genesis 3, in the Abrahamic covenant, uh, in the Mosaic covenant, and in the New Covenant that God God is true to his promises. But if he's not, if he has rejected Israel, then how can we be confident that he wouldn't do the same to us? This question may seem a little bit ridiculous given that Paul is an Israelite. But if we aren't sure that God has has not rejected his people, if we aren't certain that God hasn't rejected his people, then we would have no reason for hope. So Paul emphatically says that God has not rejected his people, that they're still his people. And he gives us four proofs. The first is Paul himself. Verse 1, For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. In Philippians, Paul says that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was among the elite, and God saved him. So Paul's testimony alone shows that he, that God has not rejected his people. And if, if God would reject anyone, you would think it was Paul. I mean, he openly persecuted the church. In Acts 7, it says that Paul approved of Stephen, the first martyr, of his execution, And yet, God saved him. God stops him on the road to Damascus, or Jesus stops him on the road to Damascus, and because of that, Paul is saved. So, the first proof that God hasn't rejected Israel is Paul himself. The second is a theological response that God does not reject those whom he foreknew. And that's a theological term for for God choosing a specific people before the foundations of the earth, as Ephesians 2 says. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. The same word foreknew is used in Romans chapter 8, in verses 29 to 30. It says, for those whom he, God, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be able, or he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul is intentional in his use of this word here. He's using it so that we would be reminded of what he said before. That we could say all of those things about the, the spiritual Israel, about the Israel, the remnant that is saved. That God foreknew he predestined them to be conformed he he uh, predestined them to be called that they would be justified that they would be glorified that truth is true for us for gentile believers and it's also true for israelite believers he is implying that god has chosen them yes even them but from the foundations of the earth but what about the majority of the nation that god has rejected there is a vast majority that approved of Jesus' execution, that would have continued to approve of it, that would have approved of, of the persecution of the church. What about those people? Paul continues on by going using a biblical proof. He goes back to the Old Testament to prove that God has not rejected his people. Verse 2 continues and it says, Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I am alone left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. How many of you guys know what story Paul is talking about? Anyone? No one? I didn't think so. I just wanted to drink some water. Uh, Paul is referring to the prophet of Elijah. How many of you guys have heard of Elijah? So Elijah is first introduced in 1 Kings chapter 16. And he, he is the prophet during the reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who were among the most wicked rulers of all of Israel before them. They might be the worst of the worst. Not only did Ahab bring in widespread Baal worship or or pagan worship that that included things like child sacrifice after he married his wife Jezebel. But then he allowed Jezebel to put many prophets of God to death. You can read that in 1 Kings 16 to 18. Eventually, Elijah goes and confronts Ahab and, and uh, calls for a contest of the prophets, if you will. I've told this story before. I've reminded us of this story before that it's like hundreds of, of pagan uh, prophets going up against Elijah alone. And they're really, it's a contest of the gods. I think that's what uh, one of my son's children books calls it. And they go back and forth and eventually God clearly and uh, emphatically wins this contest by burning up an entire altar while the, the other prophet's altar is left alone. So he confronts, Elijah confronts them, and he wins, and all these prophets, are, almost a thousand of them are put to death. And you would think at that moment that Elijah is hopeful. I would expect him to be hopeful. God has clearly, in front of Israel, shown his power And the the fact that these other gods aren't even real. You would think that Elijah is hopeful in this moment. But then his hope is quickly dashed. In retaliation, Queen Jezebel comes after Elijah to kill him. And Elijah has to flee. In 1 Kings 19.10, it says, Elijah says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. When Elijah says this, he's hiding from Jezebel in a cave, being sustained only by God, who eventually asks him, God asks him, Elijah, what are you doing here? It's not that God didn't know. It's similar to when God calls out for Adam in the in the in the garden, looking for him. God fully knew what was going on, but Elijah needed to wrestle through what he was what he was struggling with. I mean this this roller coaster that he's been on. He's confronted at the at the command of God, the king who could kill him in an instant. He went up to him and confronted him for his pagan worship. And then he watched God defeat the prophets of Baal. And then he, Elijah, orders their their slaughter, which is fully right and just. And yet he is on the run for his life. So God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's response is telling him that he is left alone. Out of all of God's people, he is the only one who fears the Lord. He's the only one who is obedient to the covenant, and yet they're seeking to take his life. He feels alone, and he feels that he's the only one left. But God has not left his people. And so that's what God tells him in 1 Kings nineteen eighteen. He says, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah may have felt that God has left his people. He probably, he could have championed even God leaving his people. And yet, God didn't. Though they fully deserved it. They fully deserved for God to reject them. And yet God's encouragement to Elijah was that he is not alone. And for us, that reiterates a great truth that there will always be a remnant of those who are saved, a remnant of the righteous. Even deeper than that is that there will always be a remnant of Israel that fears the Lord. Paul's purpose in bringing this up is to say that God has always saved a remnant, that the the believer is never truly alone, no matter the circumstance. Paul continues in, in Romans eleven five. 5, he says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, saying that there is a remnant of Israel chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This should be a massive encouragement for us. On the small scale, like in your, in your own personal lives, when it seems that all your friends are enjoying sin, that that they're walking away from the faith, know that you aren't left alone. Know that you aren't the only one left holding true to the faith. For the most part, that should should be easy for us to be reminded of when we come to church on Sundays. That there are many people who continue to pursue righteousness. But if you're looking outside of Tehachapi, it might seem like All of our culture is leaving the Lord. What that shows us is, one, we cannot depend upon our culture, our government, or anything to continue on in whatever seemed like a Christian path. But two, that we must continue to trust God. In a different context, if you were to become a missionary, this would remind us that we, sure, we might be the only believers in our region, but ultimately... We aren't left alone, and God will never leave us alone. He didn't leave Elijah alone when he was fleeing from Jezebel and Ahab. He didn't leave uh, the exiles alone in Babylon. He didn't leave the re- those who returned to Israel alone in a crushed Jerusalem. And God doesn't leave Christians alone in whatever context they find themselves in. There will always be a remnant, even when the deck seems stacked against us. There will always be those who will continue to seek after the Lord. So do not lose faith. Do not lose hope, regardless of what's going on around you. Seek God and find your rest in him. Paul also goes so far as to remind us that our salvation is by grace, not by works at all. So we can't lose our salvation. We can't, uh, if, if God has saved us, there is nothing that can pluck us from his hands. The reason Israel rejected the Messiah is that they were looking for salvation in the wrong place. They were looking for salvation from the, in the law. They were looking for righteousness from their works. But God's promise of salvation only comes through grace. Your obedience does not save you, or your lack of obedience doesn't, uh, doesn't remove your salvation. Your baptism doesn't save you, that's obedience. Your Bible reading doesn't save you. Your church attendance doesn't save you. God's grace through Christ's work is the only thing that can save you. And that's what we're putting our faith in. When we say we're putting our faith in something, it's saying that we're, we're trusting that what Jesus has done is enough the only way to, to attain our salvation, the only way to be saved, is by seeking it rightly through Jesus and through Jesus alone. By going to God, confessing our sins, and making Jesus our Lord and Savior. If you want your salvation to depend upon God's grace and nothing else, you will receive salvation. You will be seen as righteous. So seek righteousness in the right way. Don't depend on yourself, but depend on Christ. That's what Paul is pointing us to here, that the righteous will get what they seek. They will be defined by what they seek. So if you seek Christ, you will be defined by Christ. If you put your faith in Jesus, you will be saved. But then on the flip side of that, we get a hard truth, that if you seek Salvation wrongly, you will not be saved, no matter how earnest you are in your seeking, no matter how, how hard you try, if the unrighteous or if you seek righteousness according to works, you will be judged in that way, and two, you will be hardened against salvation by grace. Romans 11:7. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The remnant were saved. The remnant are going to be saved. There will be some of Israel who is saved, but the rest are hardened against salvation by grace. They rejected God's way of salvation, even though it was made clear to them. The Messiah came from Israel and they rejected him. The only law that really could have earned salvation or or could have kept righteousness was the one that Adam broke very quickly in the garden. No other law saves. That's why the Sadducees didn't believe in eternal life. That's one of the beliefs of the Sadducees that separates them from the Pharisees. They didn't see eternal life mentioned in the first five books of the law, the Pentateuch, which is what they held to. No law can save the truth is that that those that are hardened are stuck in their pride and sin and it's that same pride that leads to the hardening of their hearts that god has given them over to their sin this is really romans 1 18 to 25 applied to israel in that passage paul's talking about the unrighteous that they're given over to their sin their hearts are hardened against the ways of god Verse 8, Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, including unrighteous legalism and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, it's clear to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Read through that again with Israel in mind. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were were darkened. Verse 24 goes on to say, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The lie that Israel exchanged was the, was the, was that, or the the lie, or the truth that Israel exchanged for a lie was that salvation comes by faith. That their forefather Abraham was justified by his faith, not by his works. And instead of holding to that, they exchanged that for the lie that their obedience would bring them righteousness. That their obedience to the law would bring about their salvation. They believed that God only rewards them when they obey and that they believed that they could obey perfectly. But in reality... They couldn't. There was no way for us to obey the law perfectly. It wasn't meant to be obeyed perfectly. It was meant to show us our sin. Because Israel rejected God's way of salvation, he gives them over to their pride. Romans 11.8 says, "As As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. Now this is a hard teaching. This is hard to hear. It breaks our it should break our hearts for the lost, that they are so in love with their sin that their hearts are hardened. And that word hardened is referring, isn't just referring to the hardening, but in that Greek word, there's, there's an implication of, of something coming over to blind them. So not only is there a hardening, but they are blinded to the truth. God is giving them over to what they desire. They desire to seek righteousness by works. So God gives them over to that. They continue to reject God. So God gives them over to that. This is a hard teaching that the gospel would be a stumbling block to God's people. It's what 1 Corinthians, 10, or, sorry, 1 Corinthians 1. 23 says. That Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. That they can't continue on. They, they stumble over it. And it is foolishness to the Gentiles. They sought righteousness wrongly. So they weren't... They weren't given righteousness, even though they earnestly, even though they, with their whole hearts, pursued it. God wouldn't give them righteousness because they did. About it. They went about it in the wrong way. Think about it this way. And again, I, when, whenever I give an illustration, I try to remind you guys that it only goes so far, so don't base your entire theology off of this. But when you get homework, you get certain directions telling you how to get 100%, yes? You should, let's say, every time you do. If you did this assignment wrong, let's say it's a paper, and instead you make a PowerPoint and try to give a presentation, what's going to happen? You fail. Even though you might have done the best PowerPoint ever, you're still not going to pass. You're probably going to be told to redo it. You might have sought that A earnestly with everything in you, but you aren't going to get it. Righteousness is similar. Again, don't base your entire theology off of it, but righteousness is similar. There are Hindus, there are Buddhists, there are Mormons, there are Catholics. Every other religion seeks righteousness. Muslims seek righteousness by obedience. And there are many that devote their entire lives to it. They seek it earnestly with everything they have, but if they aren't seeking righteousness through Christ and Christ alone, they aren't going to get it. Scripture is clear that God has revealed himself fully to everyone, and yet we reject him. What that should do to us is spur us on to evangelism and to, and to missions. Romans 10, 14 to, to 17, which you guys talked about a couple weeks ago, says this. It says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written, how beautiful, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If people do not hear the gospel, how will they believe? We can't be confident that even in our, even in Tehachapi, that everyone has heard the gospel, even if they say they're a Christian or they've gone to church or they grew up in a Christian home. This is why we evangelize, because we want people to be saved, because God has called us, has commanded us to proclaim the gospel. He's commanded us not only to proclaim the gospel, but to go and to either support or to go across cultures, and bring the gospel. This is why we prepare and send people out into the mission field to unreach language groups. We cannot expect people to know the gospel if they've never heard it. Words are absolutely necessary to proclaim the way of salvation. People might think you're different because you act like a Christian, because you do Christian things, but they won't know who Christ is based solely on your actions. Words are necessary for gospel proclamation. No one is saved because they're ignorant of it, and no one is saved by their works. They're only saved by putting their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. People are only saved through Jesus. That's what Paul is pointing to us here. He's saying that that we are saved through Christ alone and we are called to tell people about him. So don't shut your hearts off to evangelism because you're unprepared. Get prepared. Open yourself up to going across across cultures, to going across the world to proclaim the gospel. Don't say that's just for someone else. God has commanded all of us to proclaim the gospel. So what have we learned in these 10 verses? One, God has not rejected his people, but has saved him for himself a remnant. And we'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. And second, we are reminded yet again that salvation comes from Christ alone and nowhere else. And our response is to evangelize to the nations, and that includes people who may have heard of God, especially to those who might be led astray. So if you have a concern for Israel, as if you ever study eschatology, there's a lot of thoughts about it, but if you have a concern for Israel, proclaim the gospel to the nations. That's what Paul goals, Paul's goal was. He went to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous so that his people could be saved. Be ready for evangelism. Know the gospel, know what you believe, and know how to say it. There's plenty of people in this room, both students and and leaders, who could share the gospel or teach you how to share the gospel in a minute. Know what you believe and know how to say it and practice it. And finally, Wrestle with whether or not God is calling you to go to other nations, to be a missionary. That is a high calling, but it is one that we are commanded to do, either be goers or be senders. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and and what it calls us to do and how it calls us to live. I pray that we would uh, be open to evangelism, to cross-cultural work. I pray that we would seek your kingdom and that we would proclaim the gospel. And I pray that you would continue to shape our hearts by your word. In Jesus' name, amen.